0: And if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 18, Acts chapter 18, looking at verse 9 and 10 this morning, it says, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city who are my people. Uh, I'd like you to see this morning that these words fit the basic pattern of God's promises throughout all of Scripture. These words fit the basic pattern of God's promises throughout all of Scripture. There isn't a lot of difference, for instance, between what Jesus says to Paul here and what Jesus says to Abraham in Genesis 15, where he says, for instance, in verse 1 of Genesis 15 to Abram, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield, your reward shall be very great. And in verse five, he brought him outside and said, look to the heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. He said, well, how are those promises similar to what we see in Acts 18? Well, because God's promises are always kind of involving these two essential things. Um, I am with you. And I'm going to use you to expand my kingdom and to further my name. So there's the promise of his presence. And then there's some promise of success or fruitfulness. And this is just how God talks to his people. These are the kinds of promises he issues. When Jesus issues his great commission, he reverses the order. And he says, go and make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them, all that I've commanded you, and that's his assurance of success. He says, go into all the world and make disciples. That's not just go and try to do this. That's This is what's going to happen. And then he says, at the end, an assurance of his presence. He says, and lo, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So this promise that we see Jesus extending to Paul in Acts 18 is Sort of made of the same material that many of God's promises are throughout Scripture—an assurance of His presence. I am with you, and I am with you in the Bible. Also means I am for you. It's really funny how uh, this this promise of "I am with you" has such a, a diverse sort of uh, has a of uh, provokes two different responses. Because when I am an uh, if I'm an unbeliever. I don't want to be in God's presence. I'm doing everything I can to run away from it, right? I'm a roach running away from the light. And then when God changes me through, through the rebirth of the spirit, like when God changes me, suddenly this, this thing, God's presence, becomes not something I'm running away from, but something I find comfort in. And this is just the way that God issues care and comfort throughout Scripture. I am going to be with you. I'm for you, and you're going to be fruitful or successful or so on. And I could just walk you through. I'll take you through a number of these texts this morning that show this example. So this is just this thing that, that Jesus says to Paul. It's very similar to just many of the promises we see in Scripture. That's point one. And point two, these promises are for a certain kind of person with a certain kind of problem. It has taken me three weeks to figure out how to talk about this. Number one, these, the promises that Jesus extends in Acts 18, 9, and 10 are basically built the way that all promises are built. Number two, all of these promises are for a certain kind of person with a certain kind of problem. In this case, these promises are meant to keep Paul from shrinking back and becoming quiet or even leaving a situation which he feels is too risky to remain in. And this is pretty common, this idea that Jesus, that the promises themselves always kind of look the same, and they're always given to a specific kind of person with a specific kind of problem. And I think that the way I would describe it is these promises are given to people who are in a mid-adventure crisis. They have already said yes, but now they're wavering. And what have they said yes to? It's always the same thing. It's always the expansion of God's kingdom. It's always they've they've said no to self, and they've said yes to living for the sake of God's fame, for the expansion of God's kingdom. So that's, I think, important to see. These promises are not for someone who is trying to live for themselves. The promises that that Jesus extends to Paul in Acts 18 are not given to you so that you will have a happier day. They're not given to you if your focus is you. These are promises extended to people who have said yes to the mission of God and have arrived at a certain place in that process in which they are wavering, they're fearful, they're doubting, and so forth. So it would be uh, it would be a, an exercise in futility to try to take this promise in Acts 18 and 9 through 10 and give that away to everybody in this room, regardless of whether you are living for yourself or you are living for the mission of God. Because you would take these promises, if you're living for yourself, you would take these promises and you'd be like, I, they're not comforting me. Why aren't they comforting you? Because you shouldn't be comfortable because you're in disobedience. Um, these promises are given to a particular people with a particular problem. And that particular people are people who have said yes to the mission of God. And the problem is they've gotten out on an edge. They've gotten out on a limb and they begin to doubt. Is, are you really, is this really you, God? Have you really called me to this? That's what these promises are for. So, for instance, talk about out on a limb. Can you imagine what it would be like to follow Moses as the leader of Israel? Um. Joshua is in that situation. Very often when you see these sorts of God coming to someone to assure them, they've said yes to this big mission, this, this big, this, this calling. And they just don't feel up for it. They don't know if they can do it. And so God comes to, to Joshua, Joshua chapter one, verse five. Listen to the similarities of this in Acts 18 and Genesis 15. No man, Joshua, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Can you hear the Acts 18, 9 through 10 there? Uh, Jesus says to Paul in Acts 18, 9, no one will come attack you to harm you, for I have many people in this city. J- God says to Joshua, no man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I'll be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. And then in verse 6, be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Verse 10, uh, have I not commanded you to be strong and courageous? Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And friends, it's easy to imagine someone putting that on their refrigerator and thinking it applies to their self-directed, self-focused life. And it just, this is not a promise for that kind of person. This is a promise for the kind of person who has said yes all the way to the end of themselves. And they're just like weak and unsure. And they don't know if they can continue. And and, and God comes and he says, I'm with you and you're going to be okay. You're going to succeed. You're going to succeed more than you realize you're going to succeed. Jeremiah, the calling of Jeremiah was instrumental. When I was, I think, 16 years old really just for the first time taking the Bible seriously. And I came across like this passage in Jeremiah 1. um, But the Lord said to me, this is the calling of Jeremiah as a young man. But the Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go. And whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. So these promises, I'm with you and I'm going to take care of you and I'm going to cause you to, to be more fruitful than you can imagine. These are for people who have a certain problem. They've said yes to God and now they're wondering can I I keep doing this? Can I keep going? And here's one of the most beautiful things is that these promises are for those people and Jesus never gets tired of saying them over and over again. He confirms these promises to these kinds of people over and over again. I mean, he said this to Joshua multiple times in multiple different ways. He said this to Moses multiple times in multiple different ways. He appears to Abraham three times and essentially offers the same covenant. And then Jeremiah, you know, that we, we read the text in which he first felt called. In Jeremiah 15, he is really doubting that he made the right choice in giving his all to the Lord. And he says in Jeremiah 15, he says something like, he kind of accuses God of being, this is just my memory, but he kind of accuses God of being an unfaithful stream and i remember looking that up I was like what does that mean and it, it, he basically is saying like you show, you looked like you were a stream that would be good for me so i drank from you and ever since i've drank from you all, i've had trouble i mean that's that's as real as it gets and and but he is that certain kind of person in a cert, with a certain kind of problem he's in the middle of the adventure he's in the middle of the mission he's like god This does not seem to be a good choice. And God actually comes to him and says exactly the same stuff again. (laughs) A certain kind of person with a certain kind of problem can accuse God of being poison. And God will come again with a fatherly heart and say, I know you're tired. I know you're wavering. I know you're afraid but I am the right choice. And that's what these promises are for. That's who these promises are for. The third point in this message is that Paul was that kind of person with this kind of problem, with these kinds of problems. So let me just give you kind of a quick overview of where Paul found himself. Paul felt an obligation to share the gospel. He felt compelled, like he felt responsible to share the gospel. If you've got your Bibles open to Acts 18, uh, look at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, "'Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent.'" From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. What's the implication there? Paul, at some level, felt as if his silence, if he had not gone to them, that their blood would be on his hands. So Paul felt an obligation to share the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 9, 16, Paul says that to him, preaching the gospel is just a necessity it's not a bonus kind of thing he he just says this is a necessity what do i what credit do i get for doing what is required and then he says woe to me if i do not preach the gospel so paul saw sharing the gospel as an obligation um there's a there's a theological controversy that i didn't know about but i had felt it i just didn't know it was a thing called uh, uh, continuity and discontinuity perspectives on a, a, a apostolic evangelism. And I think you've probably thought about this. I think some of you have probably thought about this. I'm not going to get into it now, but uh, I, I just want to tell you that there's a this is a thing, and I've looked into it. <laughs> so there's the, the, the question in the continuity and discontinuity of apostolic evangelism is, is the obligation to sell out and share the gospel that Paul felt unique to Paul as an apostle or an evangelist or a preacher? Or is this something that all believers should feel? I think you've probably wondered that. Uh, You probably maybe have read the Great Commission in Matthew 28 and wondered, is this Jesus speaking to all of us through the disciples? Or is this just Jesus speaking to the apostles? I mean that 's kind of a good question, just generally when you read the gospel. sometimes it's not so clear, and so the continuity perspective says that, uh, that, that, that that whatever obligations more or less that the apostles or the disciples felt to share the gospel extends to all of all of us. that 's the continuity perspective. And then the discontinuity perspective says that, no, there was never an expectation for the average believer to be active in sharing their faith. That, that the expectation for evangelism was always upon the leaders of the church. So those are the two perspectives. And I bet you you've probably wondered about, like, well, what exactly is my obligation? Paul is just very clear. I, there, your blood is on my hands if I don't share the gospel. And let me add one other piece of this. This is like a psychological, emotional piece. Some of us have experienced very manipulative preaching on various issues. And one of them is on this issue, another one would be on hand, giving. And I think one of the commonalities of Providence members is generally a strong distaste for manipulative kinds of leadership. Uh, I think there's a preference to just, just just be as transparent and authentic as possible in communicating. If you've been in a situation where you felt like you were under manipulative teaching on this area, you may have sinful overreactions to this whole subject that aren't related at all to what God says. So anyway, this continuity and discontinuity questions like, well, which is right? Well, overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly throughout church history, uh, this isn't a fair fight. The continuity perspective wins out just overwhelmingly. There's far more evidence to suggest that believers, just average people, have some responsibility to share their faith. And I would be happy to have a longer conversation with you. If this is something that's really kind of holding you up, I think it would be really good to just let me know, and I can give, give you the stuff that I found and you can kind of sort through it. So Paul feels an obligation. In Romans chapter 1, he actually says, I have an obligation both to the Jews and to the Greeks. Number two, he really loved the lost. Now we're talking about why Paul was the certain kind of person that had a certain kind of problem that these promises were for. And the first one is, Paul felt a strong obligation to share the gospel. And the second one is, he really really loved the lost he loved seeing people come to faith in christ i would say that in terms of you know paul what are you living for he would say like all good christians would say i guess uh i'm living for the glory of god but then when you said what does that mean practically i would say i am called to help people be delivered out of the kingdom of darkness delivered out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And he saw this, leading people to Jesus as his main goal, leading people to Jesus who didn't know Jesus and leading people to Jesus who did know Jesus. He, he saw disciple-making generally as the point of his life. And I think it's really important sometimes to just take hit pause and say two things. One, if I'm not very, very deliberate about what I'm living for, I will wind up living for myself, and not even any kind of cohesive self vision. Like I'll just kind of be living for for whatever I'm into this year, you know. And I will just wander. So I think it's really good to take a hit, pause, and say, "What is your main point?" And I'm I'm the prototypical middle aged guy, empty nest guy, and this is just so much a question for me. At this age in my life, and I just tell you, I have really seriously thought what is what is the point, and I'm, I'm I don't know how much of this is blurred by me being a pastor. I'm just trying to help you. I cannot think of a single point more worthy of a life than to make disciples, and I really I really think that for, for many of you need to just re go back and say. I don't know what I'm actually living for right now. I would just say, what else would there be that is as worthy as to make disciples? You know, when my wife and I were really young, we were going through all of the sort of hard knocks, the first round of hard knocks of pastoral ministry. I remember one time she just said, as an aside, you know, we were probably 23, 24, she's like, the only two things that last forever are people and the word. So let's just keep doing that. What's your purpose? What's your life purpose? Because the great thing is, is if you make this your life purpose, then you get these promises. So Paul had made this his life purpose. In 1 Corinthians 9, he just uses the word winning, you know, hashtag winning. What is your, what right now, like what is your hashtag winning? What's the evidence that you are winning? Here's Paul's way of thinking about winning. I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. Winning. What is your winning? Paul's winning was Making disciples. It was just a very sweet thing for Paul to see people delivered out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of light, and then transformed progressively into the nature, into the uh, image of Christ. In fact, sometimes Paul's the way Paul talks about people feels really close to the blurry line of idolatry. This is how much he loved people. Listen to some of the ways he talks about people. He calls the converts of, uh, the Phil- of Philippi his joy and his crown. Think about that for a second. Let's just, let's pretend we don't know Paul is Orthodox. And we're just reading these statements. These feel very emotionally charged. It feels very much as if Paul's identity is very deeply associated with this mission of making disciples. In 2 Corinthians, he says that on the day of the Lord Jesus, he hopes to boast in the Corinthians. He tells the Thessalonians, for what is the hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and our joy. Friends, think about Think about how deeply Paul felt love, allegiance to these people. For him, he summarizes it elsewhere as saying this is a fine reason to live. This is a fine reason to live. If I die, I'm with Christ. If I remain, I get to keep on making disciples. You say, well, that's beautiful, but I don't know what that has to do with the lost. Well, remember, that's just, Paul's categories are different. The reason why Acts 18.10 works for Paul is when Jesus says, I have many people in this city. Paul had a doctrine of election that he just said, there's God's people before they're saved, and there's God's people after they're saved, but they're all his people. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul says, Therefore, I endure everything. For the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory, Donald Guthrie, in his commentary, writes the apostle next states a reason for his endurance. Why is Paul alive? Why is he why is he spatulating himself up off the road after being beaten? Why is he going back into the city? Why does he endure? The apostle next states a reason for his endurance, it is for the sake of the elect, which seems to mean those who are elect but do not yet believe. They have to be one. And every ounce of effort must be put into the present conflict in which both Paul and Timothy are engaged. This is brought out more forcibly by the concluding clause that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus. All Paul's present trials are abundantly worthwhile in view of the priceless benefits to be obtained by those who receive the message of himself and his fellow laborers. All Paul's present trials, considerable trials, are abundantly worthwhile in view of the priceless benefits to be obtained by those whom he would win. This is Paul's reason to live. So Paul is that kind of person. He has just decided over and over and over again that he's going to live for the glory of Christ in making disciples. But Paul has a certain problem. He struggles with fear. He struggles with fear. I think it is really important to see Paul as being afraid. I think we can other him in a way that makes his example something we would not think we are called to imitate, even though the word expressly tells us to do that. Spurgeon writes of Paul's fear, Do not think, therefore, my dear brother or sister, if in working for Christ you get thoroughly cast down and sick of yourself, that you are undergoing an experience unknown to the sons of god it is by no means so trembling takes hold on all in on all in turns faintness is common enough on all hands no doubt those heroes who have fought the battle of the truth and have driven back its adversaries have been men of like passions with us and some of them of more than ordinary Sensitiveness of feeling. See, here's the thing you don't have that deep love for people without also being a sensitive person, sensitive to reviling and slander and rejection. It, you don't get one without the other. I, I really kind of over people in the church who haven't lifted an evangelistic finger in years trying to be the guardians of what love is. It's like, you, you're like totally not loving. Why would you tell me what love is? Like you you won't risk anything for another person. Luther said, because I seem to always be strong and merry, men think that I walk on a bed of roses, but God knows how it is with me. So Paul has... He's this kind of person. He wants to live for the advancement of the gospel, the making of disciples. But he has this problem. His problem is fear. In 2 Corinthians 7.5, he says, When we came into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings, within were fears. You know, I said last week or two weeks ago that in Ephesians 6, he concludes this letter by saying, you know, as you're praying, pray also for me that words may be given to me in the opening of my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So Paul's problem is fear. I would say just broadly we're going to talk about this next week, more specifically the fear issue. But I would just say more broadly, we should, we should say that Paul, Paul's problem is discouragement. Okay? I want to say that more broadly. Discouragement and fear, discouragement, lack of courage. You know, But there are other places, other ways that someone in the mid-adventure of the mission of God can get discouraged. It's not always fear. Sometimes it's discouragement over lack of resources. Sometimes it's discouragement over lack of not a vain pursuit of approval, but just a recognition. Sometimes it's just a discouragement over a lack of recognition that's not sinful. Uh, Sometimes it's just a discouragement over your own capabilities. A professional boxer this week, retired, and he said, In his retirement, I had to come to terms with the fact that I simply didn't and wasn't going to ever accomplish what I wanted to accomplish. It was the most brutally honest retirement speech I've ever seen. And sometimes someone on mission that wants to to make disciples, that wants to serve, they get discouraged because they just just are are kind of pathetic in their capabilities. (laughs) They feel that way. There's a million discouragements. Right now, Paul is dealing with fear. But because he is that kind of person with this kind of problem, he is eligible for the promise that Jesus brings. And he says, do not be afraid. But go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And final point, the root of this promise and the thing that really does it for Paul is the promise of God's presence. The root of this promise, wherever you go in scripture, is the promise of his presence. You know, Psalm 16, the last verse of Psalm 16, verse 11 is beautiful. And there's just two ways of thinking about this verse. It says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And one way to look at this verse is to say, path of life, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Like this is sort of the way that we would think about things typically. I like those things. I like path of life. I like the fullness of joy. I like pleasures forevermore. But of course, those are just consequences of what? Of being his, The foundation of all of those promises is the presence of God. In his presence is fullness of joy. He makes known to me the path of life. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. The root promise in all the promises is God is with us. In the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, Paul says this very interesting phrase. He says that all of the promises are yes in Christ. All of the promises are yes in Christ. I think that's 2 Corinthians one ten, maybe. One of the reasons that this is true, why, why are all the promises yes in Christ? Well, one of the reasons I think that that's true is because Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. He is the presence of God in our lives. And therefore, every every, every consequence of his presence, every good consequence of God's presence is ours in Christ Jesus. And that's when Paul says in Ephesians 1, we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Why? Because now God's with us. We have his presence. The heart of all of these promises is, I am with you. And there was this old author named Horatius Benar who uh, you could, I wouldn't have to say he was old, would I? I'd just say his name and you'd know him. Not a new guy. And he did just some wonderful work in Acts 18 on why the presence of God means everything here. And he essentially splits it into two categories. And he's like, the presence of God means Paul's safety and the presence of God means Paul's success. And listen to how he says it. Christ's presence is our true security. Not armed guards, not bulwarks, nor forts, but Christ himself. He is our rock, our strong tower, our shield and buckler. No weapon can reach the man thus sheltered. No foe can injure us who have been found in him. The security is perfect and divine, greater than that of the everlasting hills. For as the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so the Lord is round about them that fear him. Much there there may be of seeming Nothing of real danger. Much there may be of seeming, nothing of real danger. All is safety. No weapon formed against us shall prosper. No enemy shall prevail. No man shall set upon us to hurt us. For greater is he that is in us than all that are against us. Come what will, we are safe. Let faith realize this heavenly presence in all difficulty or peril. A present Christ, that is our security. It is a complete and it is complete and divine. we are immortal till our work is done, which is something David Livingston would say as he brushed death time and time again in Africa, "We are immortal until our work is done. And then when you're done, they find you, like they found Livingston on his knees in a, uh, on his knees leaned up against a cot, praying in a tent in Zambia, dead. He's done. His immortality ran out. (laughs) So, Bonner says that this is guaranteed security. When Christ is with us, it is guaranteed security. And then he also says it is guaranteed success. The same words that declare safety announce success. If he goes with us to our work, we cannot fail. His presence ensures success. Nothing else can. Nothing more is needed, not eloquence nor learning, nor intellect, nor breadth of thought, nor high position, nor sympathy with the progress of the age, but the presence of the Lord. So Paul had this had this issue. He said yes. And then he starts wavering in his yes. Have you said yes? if not, everything I just read, not for you. Is not This is not a stable of promises for a person who lives for themselves. There's the old poem from Robert Frost, you know, two, wood, two wo- uh, roads diverge in the wood and I took the one less traveled by and that has made all the difference. I think you just have to remember that there's always these paths set before you and there's the path of self, which is very <laughs> well traveled. And if you take that path and it's easy to wander back onto it, these promises are not for you. Matthew 10, 37 through 39, Jesus says it clearly. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will find it. For whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, if you have chosen the path of Paul and Abraham and Joshua and Jeremiah, you're gonna be just fine. Whatever discouragement is hitting you mid-adventure, man, these promises are for you. These promises are for you. Maybe the truth is, is that you're not on the Jeremiah, Paul, Abram path. You're on the you path. Well, today's the day God is so faithful to give us fresh reminders, especially at the beginning of a new year, It's like you drifted. At one point, you were locked in and you were solidly intentional in building my kingdom in the way that was unique for you. And you've drifted, and now life's about you. And I think this Acts 18, 9 through 10 is an enticement from the Lord, saying, this is, this is the life we could have. It's a life full of fragility and fear and tre- trembling and weakness, but it's also full of me and my promises. And if you choose that path, then you will find Christ there when you need him even when you're really struggling to believe, especially when you're really struggling to believe, when you're at your weakest and you're at your weariest, you will have Christ there for you. Do not fear overextending with the yes of faith. Because there in your weakness, you will find the strength of the Lord. I'm just going to paraphrase 2 Corinthians 4, 8 through 9, where Paul says, let me just give you some promises here. When you are afflicted in every way. When you are afflicted in every way. If you say yes to him, he will keep you from being crushed. When you are perplexed, he will keep you from being driven to despair. When you are persecuted, he will remind you that you are not forsaken. When you are struck down, you will not be destroyed. Let me introduce the Lord's table today by reading from 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live, this is the, this is the, He thought, as we walk up to take communion today, He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised. He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him who for their sake died and was raised.